Let's talk to interesting people. Let's talk about the process of seeing things differently. Let's talk about the craft of molding truth and fiction together to arrive at something new and exciting. And let's have fun while doing it. Welcome to the True Fiction Podcast. Welcome to the True Fiction Podcast, the place where we dive deep into the minds of incredibly talented and creative individuals and try to unravel the mysteries behind their inspirations. I'm your host, Patrick Boggs, and joining me on this fantastic journey is my co-host, the uncanny Norbert Yates. How's it going tonight, Norbert? I am strapped in. I'm ready for a journey. Ready I don't for know where journey. we're going, but I'm hoping it's somewhere good. I've said this before. I said we have a really good guest, but man, we have a really good guest tonight. Tonight's guest is a specialist in AI and has extensive experience working with tech companies, including Microsoft, Fox, and Disney in research and community management and in music streaming, where he trained music discovery algorithms for several of today's biggest platforms. He's also a musician and a two-time independent music award nominee whose work has been featured in the Saints Row video game franchise and dozens of TV shows, including Breaking Bad and Sons of Anarchy. As a Clio award-winning copywriter and creative director, his work is visible on the national stage with projects like Donald Glover's Atlanta, Jordan Peele's The Last OG, Hulu's Wu-Tang and American Saga, as well as projects for Amazon Music. As an activist, he has served as creative director in residence for the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition since 2020 helping to mainstream awareness around the ever-expanding police surveillance state and explore the potential harms of artificial intelligence in predictive policing. This work received Resist Foundation grants to sustain and was nominated for a Mozilla Foundation Creative Leadership Award in 2021. In addition, he serves as founding principal and creative director at the Kismet Experience Studio, a purpose-driven interdisciplinary practice for creative direction. True Fiction, welcome. Some Patton to the show. Some, how is it going? Is it okay to call you some? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's great to be here. I'm looking forward to this conversation. I'm disclaiming, I'm throwing some disclaimers off tops. My, my youngest daughter kept me up all night last night randomly. She doesn't even do that anymore. But I think she knew that this, this appearance was coming. So she kept me up all night. So I'm like underrested and overcaffeinated. I don't know how my brain is functioning right now. Who knows what I might say? So let's see where this goes. I, I know love that. <laughs> that's exactly what I want. So that's perfect. All right. <laughs> I'm a bit unwound. It, isn't that what you typically send instructions to guests yeah. to not sleep and then over-caffeinate? And over-caffeinate. Or Red Absolutely. Bull or whatever. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm over-prepared then. Great. Yeah, exactly. Oh, came ready. <laughs> you know what's funny is that, and I know it's not this way, but a lot of people feel like, I, I know I would say people that don't understand creatives, and really everybody's creative, but yes. there's a specific group of people that most of my tech friends are also musicians. Yeah. And I think that's very interesting how the technology and the understanding of how music works a lot of times go hand in hand. Mm. So I'm not going to ask you why mm. you're all about the generative AI and mm. all the music and the de creative design. Mm. I just want you to talk a little bit about what got you into a generative AI? That was a little bit of a journey. I had to come to it. I was resistant at first because of my understanding historically of, of AI and also like my actual activism work. 
a lot of it has been anti, you know, and pushing back against AI and predictive policing, which is largely a generative AI. And a lot of my activism work has been pushing back against that. But that's not my total POV. There are other aspects of my POV that are obviously just as an artist and as an artist community advocate, I had just heavy questions, big questions about what this means for the arts and where's the kind of accountability, how are the machines being trained, what harm could this possibly cause the artistic community too. So I didn't feel like I had enough of an understanding to really dive in to it, embrace it, be excited about it, or even really be that scared of it. I just knew what I knew and knew that there were some things that were inherently quote unquote bad or potentially harmful about generative AI. And so I didn't, I was not like a super early adopter, but then I kind of came around to the thinking that, okay, this is an inevitable shift. And if I am truly an advocate for the artist community and I want to be the most kind of like sovereign, self-sufficient artist possible, I need to at least have a fully formed view on AI and on generative AI. And I can't have that fully formed view without stepping towards it because it's coming, it's, it's happening no matter how I feel about it. So I had to kind of step out of my feelings and into action. And part of that was kind of just talking with friends who were a little bit more well-versed in the technology. I had also kind of rewinding a bit, like I'd also kind of like dibbled and dabbled in it a bit professionally. Years of just training music discovery algorithms gave me some somewhat of a hands-on feeling or vibe for how machine learning works. And then working on a machine learning project for the Atlanta FX Twitter handle on their last season. That was an idea I pitched to the show and to the network and didn't think they were going to take. And then they took it. And next thing I knew, I was helping to train a machine. This was last year, was it 20 or the year before last, late 2021. So I had all of this kind of like, it's like different entry points to AI before the top of this year, which I consider kind of like the beginning of my own personal journey with generative AI. And the beginning of that journey was me saying, nah, I, I don't trust it. I don't, we don't know who's, who's benefiting the most, who's going to be harmed. And I was very kind of outspoken about be, at least be cautious about it. And then I got to the point where I was like, okay, I need to, in order to be a true advocate and to be truly self-empowered, then I need to like embrace it to an extent. And so then I started taking some courses and talking to people who were more well-versed in the technology and who were like learning to code and all of that and uh, watching the videos and then realizing like, I kind of had to step outside of the conversation too in the zeitgeist because a lot of what's happening in the popular conversation and the social media conversation, the media conversation is a lot of hysteria. In order for me to form my own view, I kind of had to unplug from that stuff and just hop in. So I started taking some classes and talking to more people and being like, okay, now that I have more of a fully formed view and I understand how it works a bit more, now I can start playing around with it and understanding what it means and kind of master it for myself a bit. And I guess that's where I am now. One of the things I really appreciated, I, I read your article on AI and the term that I really appreciated was democratize. Mm -hmm. And I think that is such a huge issue that we have it, I know there's huge companies out there that are producing things that we don't know what they're doing with AI, but I also know 
it's really something the little guy can actually get behind. And this is something that it's just having the knowledge and the the interest to want to study about this a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I think probably most issues that we're dealing with as a generation of humanity on this planet stem to lack of access and education. And had more of us had access to the same resources at the same entry points in the same moment in time, then we may not be dealing with a lot of the challenges that we're dealing with now. So our job as a generation is to try to ensure that happens less and less the more that time moves forward. And so right now with AI, it's clear as day to me. It's like a big flashing neon sign, like as many people as possible need to have access to this so that we can figure it out together. It doesn't need to be like squirreled away in some in the halls of power, which is pretty much what's happening anyway. Like there, there are a very limited number of people who are determining how the tech is going to be deployed and who gets it first and how much is going to cost and who has access. So we're kind of already a bit doomed in that way. But in the meantime, while it's still, the playing field is still kind of leveling and it's still kind of this no man's land in a sense, we can still speak up on it and be like, hey, the more people have access, the more we can solve problems because it, there's been a historical pattern of the people in the halls, like deciding how the people not in the halls should solve their problems. But all the best solutions come from the community. And so if AI is really going to be an ally for us then and for the communities, the various communities and the communities need to have equal access to it. And it, it shouldn't be like doled out to us in a way like we're children. It should be like, okay, we're figuring this out right now too. So you all can too. Let's figure it out together. That's very utopian and like <laughs> ideal to me. But if I don't say it, then it's just going to sit inside of me. And maybe the more I say it, then the more it becomes an idea that the rest of us can talk about out loud and maybe the idea will spread in that way. So it's the least I can do. It's not very likely. So that's the scenario that I'm also preparing for too. But in the meantime, it doesn't hurt to think about it and imagine it and, and talk about it in hopes that more people can start to move towards it. The idea of the concentration of knowledge in a small group of people, whether it's whatever the knowledge is, it's the knowledge of the legal system, it's the knowledge of how to do whatever. And it's always that question. It's always been like, it's how do you break that out into the masses, whether regardless of what it is. And so I think it's incumbent in education because education, if you don't have it in education early, if people are, they have that natural barrier. Like I, I couldn't even give my, my cell phone to my dad who's 80 years old. And he looks at it as something like uh, a talisman of evil almost. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want, I don't want to touch it. Is he wrong? <laughs> Not well, really, no. He may be right, but <laughs> you, it's, it's, it depends on how you use the tool. Of course. I think that's, and that's like the AI part of it. And yep. one of the, my biggest concern on AI is not so much the AI itself. It's the, who's programming it and their, their prejudice. Yeah. But anyway, I was just wondering if, he, as you was thinking about how we diffuse mm. this knowledge, mm. how do we get it into the hands of our young people? It, because the more we get it in those people that don't have the social, economical 
advantages that other communities have, the better the society we have. A hundred percent. The way to do that, like I said at the top of some of my comments, kind of all roads lead back to education, I think. And once you can see things and empower the youth and the next generation with ideas that, not necessarily ideas, but at least opportunity and access that we can all agree is humane and equitable, just basically, like, why should one group have this thing and the other group not outside of politics? If there's, if it's not politics, you know, I don't know what else it would be. So then let's just deal with the humanity of the issue, which is let's get as many people access to the same bank of knowledge that all groups have. There shouldn't be knowledge, shouldn't be a privilege. And then we can really start to break some stuff down and get into the nitty gritty. There's only so much we can do for those of us who are a certain age, there's only so much like certain generations, like there's only so much we can do. We just got to make ourselves comfortable with certain things and certain ideas, but we need to, in the meantime, we need to try our best to set the next generation up so that they can make a more, so the world can be a better place. And when it comes to AI, there's a lot of ways this can go. See, there's another part of me that's, it does, that's thinking like, it doesn't really matter who has access because the minute the tech hits mainstream and the way it's developing and the rate at which it's developing, it's probably going to dismantle a bunch of stuff anyway that needs to be moved out of the way for better or for worse. And when I say for worse, there might be structures that are like inherent to our civilization that we hold and we think are necessary and be normalized and we've gotten used to. And there's a good chance AI might come through and be like, you know what? You guys never needed this in the first place. Let's think about, I don't know, jobs or commerce, you know? Okay. And like, these were things that you guys thought you needed because things were a certain way. And actually we can automate everything now. So you don't really have to think about certain things that you've had to think about for your entire life. There's a good chance that might happen in our lifetime and a lot would crumble. And the full worst part that I'm talking about would be that crumbling part and the, the ouch, the owie, the growing pains of us kind of like growing up as a civilization, moving to the next paradigm, whatever it might be, which would probably and hopefully be better than the one we're in now. But the transition might, might hurt a little bit. Might so, be a little painful. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so, this, so there's that part of me that thinks like that might happen. It's, and it's maybe likely, I don't know. That's just, the, the dreamer, the daydreamer in me just kind of like playing with scenarios. I don't have any kind of like factual or empirical thing to go on with that and just riffing. But uh, in the meantime, we can think about trying to get into as many people's hands as possible and see if that moves us in that direction too. Smoother. Pat and I went to a, a convention of authors and I don't know. Writers conference. Convention or Creative. writers conference. And one of the things that I was struck by is we went and visited, we talked to different authors and they had their books on and they had the, their covers. And one of the, there was one guy that had a ton of covers and they were all AI yeah. generated. Yeah. And what I thought of, and I don't know, this would be interesting to get your feel on it. Yeah. What you was talking about this leveling. Mm -hmm. There's going to be a leveling of a certain group of artists yeah. in music and art. Mm -hmm. I think they're going to get 
are they better adapt to this very quickly or they're going to get knocked out mm-hmm. because there's a cream your Frank Bezettas and Norman Rockwells there uh, there's going to be a demand for their art no matter what but that if I can go this these guys were was doing uh was it mid 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 journey can never mid journey he was doing covers for that and he doesn't have to pay anybody to do a, bu- a book design or a cover for it. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts on this sort of leveling of what I consider mid to lower tier artist. Yeah. And maybe it's going to be in music and writing and anything along those lines. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. So good chance that leveling will happen. When I talk about the growing pains of civilization and things that we've held dear honestly okay so a few minutes ago we were talking about hierarchy of knowledge there's also been kind of a hierarchy of artistic expression too that um certain like certain artists of a certain quote-unquote caliber and a certain reach and a certain access and a certain training and a certain locality and a certain background and heritage they've also benefited from privilege too. Like I'm a privileged artist in that I've had access to great examples and great mentors and great technology. And I grew up listening to this and I had these friends and they influenced me in this way and kind of like it all whittled away from me to become at least a fully realized, if not successful artist. And that is a function of, it's a function of privilege and how I was positioned. So AI is about to open up the floodgates and give that same opportunity to all types of people who maybe haven't had the means or didn't see the opportunity to express themselves artistically. And so it's going to challenge those of us who are maybe more inherently artistically inclined to think more imaginative. And that's, it's like, in one way, this is very new, but in another way, it's not. We've been through this before multiple times. I think about it in music history and in hip hop history. Think about when the electric guitar, people forget how revolutionary the electric guitar was when it came in synthesizers and electronic instruments and all of the classically trained musicians and acoustic guitars thought it was going to be the end of creativity. And because now you can make sounds that are real coming out of your instrument. That's not really an instrument. If I can like program pretend sounds into it. But it, in fact, it didn't destroy artistry. It just expanded on the conversation. And same thing with when I think about hip hop history, these were kids in communities that didn't have access to music training programs or whatever. And they took their parents' instruments and records and old broken samplers and beat machines and decided they were going to express themselves artistically through it. And then when it, and then they also started sampling. And then when it started taking off, then there's this big woe is me moment from established artists who are like, oh no, now the floodgates are open to a whole nother group of people who aren't even really artists or musicians, if you think about it. But what would the world be without rock and roll and without hip hop, which were both with which were both like huge cultural revolutions that came on the heels of, of a technology shit. And so we've been here before. Art isn't going to die. There may be a tier of artists who've been getting away with stuff who are about to have to come to terms with, am I cut out to press forward or compete with these AI-empowered artists? And to your point, there's a saying in one of my courses that's come down from another thinker, like, 
that goes something along the lines of, it's not going to be AI that replaces humans. It's going to be humans with AI replacing humans without AI. And so that's what it's going to be. It's going to be about people who are going to embrace it and figure out how to express themselves through it. And they're going to develop a new language with it. And then we'll all fall in suit, just like we have before with every other shift, whether it was the digitization of music, whether it was the digitization, that's that, that's that no sleep last night, the digitizing of art and the rock and roll and hip hop shifts that I spoke to as well. And this is something that I'm preparing to talk with my teams about at Glow as well, because views are all over the place about how we move forward as an agency and as creative professionals. Do we embrace it? Do we not? Is this going to be, is if we embrace it, are we validating it? And then are we cannibalizing ourselves by doing that? So there's all of that. So I too wanted to go out and get a firmer POV on it so I could bring it back to my teams and be like, all right, guys, like this is how we can safely, sustainably, ethically, and also progressively move forward with this technology and use our ingenuity like to the best of our capabilities with it. Reading about Glow and what I read, it sounded like you were kind of embracing the AI. But now I was wondering just kind of how you might want to be doing this. Now, I do know Photoshop, actually Adobe products are now using, in beta at least, are using a thing called Firefly. And I'm sure you know about that. And it's their generative AI that they're putting everywhere. But the interesting thing about it, it's using all of either Adobe images or public domain stuff. And I think that's pretty cool. That's been the biggest gripe about AI is about the theft. Yeah. Is that how you guys are going? Or you got other things too going on like that? At Glow, we're still trying to figure it out. And right now, it's just kind of every creative for themselves, kind of figuring out what tools they're most comfortable with. Of course, like we can't produce it. We can't produce anything with generative AI that's going public facing yet. We don't feel like there's enough of a like legal and ethic, ethical framework for us to do that yet. But we can certainly come up with concepts and ideate. So people are using, when it comes to internal concepting and ideating, like anything's game. We have artists using Midjourney, some using Dali, some using Firefly. Firefly, obviously, so far is the most ethical out of all the stuff because the training data set, they're using their proprietary assets to train the machine. So there's no problems there, but there's also limitations with that as well. And really the truth of the matter is AI is coming for our idea of what creativity really is. That's really what the generative AI particularly is really challenging us to think about what creativity is what inspiration is and where do you draw the line between inspiration and theft? Where exactly do you draw it? And it's been one of the most harrowing experiences of my life as an artist having to stare this down in the face because for real, as humanity, we haven't really dealt with, we haven't really dealt with that because we want to, we want to romanticize inspiration as some alchemical, like magical process, you know, that we can't, but how much of that is inspired by some other person's work and a conversation that we had with Pat and Norbert today and something they said, and maybe it's something that they actually maybe own. And now I'm going off and I'm like, oh, and I'm writing it in a song and now I'm thinking it's me and like, I'm getting all the accolades for it. Wh where do we draw those lines? 
And that, it, that challenge right there is something we need to face because a lot of it boils down to when I talk about these structures that we hold on to, a lot of this boils down to the idea of ownership. And ownership is a huge deal in humanity. And why? On that point, I think this is, in yeah. some ways, it's new, but it's not new. Because yeah. you think about, I was at a marketing firm 15 years ago, and one of the designers designed this fantastic new logo for a hospital. Yeah. And everybody loved it. Yeah. Everybody loved it. And then about six weeks later, two months later, she comes in and goes, rap. Oh. <laughs> she said, I basically took it from the Lion King. Wow. And she didn't recognize it. Mm. See, that was in her, that was in her mind mm. back there. She probably saw the movie with her kids or that was on and mm. she was working on, on, on the design. And she didn't even recognize that nobody saw it until two months later, three months later. <laughs> and that's the same. That's what you're talking about with AI, yes. right? But, it, but the connections are easier to discern and that the kind of idea or is not, is it not that you can see those patterns? What do you mean? I'll make sure I'm clear. But, on what like when you design with AI, are you seeing that you're borrowing from other ideas more transparently or not? And if no. you're not, then I don't understand why, because what was it J.R. Tolkien said that uh, only God creates, we only, we subcreate, we only take and rearrange the puzzle pieces. Dealing with that. It's what the technology is exposing. That's really what's, that's really what we're dealing with. Yeah. I never thought about that, but basically what you're saying, and I, this is what I'm getting is everything is derivative. Everything is derivative. But if you're an artist and you do something that's been done before, it seems like you get a little more flack for it. And in music, think about all the lawsuits for these songs. Actually, the song that La Bamba was, it's the melody for a bunch of songs. I think we as humans want to do something that is ours, that we want to show something, but it's not. It's all derivative. But I, one thing I thought that you were saying, and I could be wrong, we all share it because we're all humans. We all have experiences of the same, the human yeah. experience. Yes, absolutely. And on, on one hand, not to get too philosophical here, but if you could imagine like the yin yang symbol, right? On, on one hand, there's nothing new under the sun and everything's been done before. But on the other hand, everything under the sun is new because it's never been done like this way before by this particular person through this piece of flesh when the sun was this way, when we were over here and they were that top. Every single micro moment is unique and every single expression is completely unique and has never, ever been here before. So it's both everything is derivative and everything is new. And we've been tussling with that line of, we've been mostly, I think, following, I'm just riffing here, I don't know. We've been mostly following our hearts I think it just kind of like sense, sensing out what feels new. If we can sense there's like a resonance, we can feel it. Okay, this feels like new. This, it feels, or the intention feels like it's coming from an original place. Like we know somewhere in here or back here that technically nothing is new. So they probably got some of it from somewhere. But watching this person do it in this way at this time, in this generation, when the planet is tilted this way, 
is a whole new experience. And the way that this person does it, there's something special about it because they are who they are and they're able to amplify what we've all done in a way that hasn't been done before. And I think that's really what we're celebrating is it's not complete originality, but the way that they're doing it is so original. And I think that AI is going to force us to really look at that and why are we so hung up on the ownership of it all? And why are we so hung up on the territory of it all and wanting to be recognized for our originality? What is that in us that is making us hold on to that so tough? And even after you peel back the layers of business, because yeah, some of it is business, like we need to know that we solely can create this thing because that is our value. And then that will, that value will hopefully translate to me being able to survive longer right. because we made value a survival thing. After we peel all that back, there's still something about it that there's something about us innately that wants to hold on and own a thing and let everybody know that it's ours. Like I did this or whatever that is in our nature. That's really what AI is going to force us to look at and examine and possibly evolve. What phase do you notice that the most? Like you said, you guys are having this struggle. Do you notice it more in using it for concepts, for writing, for art, or, for, or design, for music? Which phase do you notice it being, this issue being mo most upfront that you're having to have these discussions like, the most, like what area has the most resistance yeah well, yeah what or where do you find it most acutely music oh man music is scared and salty Ooh. but also film and tv maybe a close a very close second but music's not ready oh man music the music my music community man they're shaking in their boots right now they don't know what to do now, visual arts, my visual arts friends and my creative professional friends are much more open, I think, to it. They just want to, especially the visual artists, want to make sure that the ethics pieces is handled. But they, I think they're coming around. Yo, we have to use this. And also it's actually making our work easier. And I'm a real artist, so I don't really need to be threatened by this AI. I can just actually use it to become a better artist. A lot of visual artists are coming around to that, but musicians haven't gotten there yet. Part of the uh, Hollywood strike, the actor strike, is about their likenesses being used over and over in movies. That's what they want to do. That's what the powers that be want to do. I just heard on the radio this morning that they want to do that with music as well. And the yeah. thing, what they said in the program that I heard was they were saying that they were trying to make it basically royalty based so that the artist would get paid for it. And this, I've never heard anything about this just until this morning. And I thought, man, this could go south so many ways. Yeah. So you're saying, because uh, I haven't heard about this, interesting. So you're saying labels or whoever are talking about taking your voice and being able to use it in a perpetuity? Yep. It, shit, labels have been doing that for a generation. <laughs> no, yeah. Natalie Cole with her, with her dad. That was awesome. Yeah. The, everybody, when you hear it first, you're going to say, that's wrong. But then you're going to hear people that you want to hear sing together. Or you want to hear Jimmy Page playing with Jimi Hendrix or oh man, all kinds of different things that you're going to go, yes, I want to see that. Yeah, yeah. I think the Beatles, they're working on a Beatles record now. And it's scary to think about because of the things that we hold dear. And it's just going to make us examine why are these things 
sacred. And I'm not saying that in a confrontational way, but really in a rhetorical way. Like why, why do we hold on to a thing if we move forward with the Beatles record that is totally AI produced? Does that necessarily tarnish? Is the Beatles legacy then still not what it is? And we've been sampling people's voices for two generations now where the original artist is probably not seeing as much as they should off of it. We've been lifting each other's chord progressions and to the La Bamba point, whole entire sections of songs. We've been lifting each other's dance moves, our fashion, style of dress, expressions. We've been doing versions of this already. AI is just doing it at scale. And so now it's forcing us to look at ourselves like, oh, you know, it's making us, it's making us feel away. That's not to say that these aren't legitimate concerns. Like we should inherently, I'm saying all this philosophical stuff and kind of rabble rousing a little bit, but inherently there is something off putting about another person having ownership over one's likeness and being and expression and being able to profit off of it as long as they want to. And cause that's a piece of, that's a piece of us. It's me. Like why? Of course, we're human. We're going to feel a way about that. And so we need to have a discussion about it. And that's what AI is doing. It's forcing us to have the discussion about it. Is that right? That's not right. But wait, if I give you my likeness this way and you record it, then you get to sell it in, in the film. What actually is the difference? My issue with the strike right now, and this is a very unpopular opinion, I just don't think like we can, like the studios and I, no, no offense to any of your listeners, or even if you guys have friends or family, like in the, in the studio system. I, I say this like respectfully, like, I don't think these people can or maybe should be negotiated with. Just let them have, let them go out. They think they're about to ride off into the sunset with AI and go have a dandy time and make billions on billions of dollars with no consequence. Go ahead and let them have it. What we need to be doing as creators and as writers and as directors and actors is figuring out what the next paradigm is because those folks, they've always been about the bottom line and now you want them not to be like they haven't been ethical this whole time. So maybe now, since we all have access, or at least, the, at least I know for a fact, the majority of Hollywood creatives have access to AI, like the same tool. They may not have the same resources or the deepest pockets, but you guys could probably go and start your own studio now and put out something on your own without the studio help. Like maybe the studio idea needs to crumble. Maybe it needs to go away so we can build something else. Technology. Yeah. And if you just kind of think this out into some kind of weird dystopian future, you could almost imagine a place where these actors can't act anymore because their likenesses are owned by the by Hollywood elites. That's fair. I think there's some think on, weird things that could happen here. Well, I think one of the things that it kind of comes back to the book example. I think there's a lot of writers that are really nervous about AI that are basically guys that come up with the first idea and draft, and then they hand it over to the really talented people to, to polish it up. And then the, the extras that can be replaced by a CG character that are marginal actors, but the really good ones. See, I, that's yeah. the thing that I think is going to be the sort of the rub and the friction is those people that are good enough to do Yes. work, but not good enough to do 
really changing the world kind of work. Expensive work. Definitely. Immediately, like when the shit started becoming really apparent to me, I was like, oh shit. But a bunch of my junior and younger friends and colleagues were just getting started. And they're like that in between, like they aren't young enough to actually be in school and be getting trained on AI right now, or they aren't old enough like me to have to establish I'm established. Like you can't, there are very few creators out there who can do what I can do. Like you can't, and AI can't touch what I can do. I'm fine. I'm good. Not no good for now, but that kind of like in between, and this isn't even like a knock on them or the, not even talking about artists who are just kind of like phoning it in or their product is mid, like even just like creators and artists and writers or whatever, who are just getting, they're just getting started or maybe they're like eight years into their career. It's a weird time for them and they're scared. And then yes, to your point, then there's the artist and the writer out there who is just kind of, just kind of getting by and shuffling through and not really doing anything that is adding much value. And they just figured out a way to make money or make a name for themselves. Yeah, AI's got them shaking in their boots too, and maybe it should. It's very, it's very complicated because then you get into like when I think about my mid, mid-level, junior, and entry-level creatives out there who are looking at this sort of existential crisis in the face. On one hand, I feel for them, but on the other hand, I'm like, the system did you a disservice. We built this wrong. We built this wrong. You should be safe. If you chose this way, if you chose to be a professional artist, there should be a safe way for you to have done that without risk of your work being automated. But the reason that your job can be automated is because it was designed that way. We were designed to yield the most product for the least amount of input. So of course, that's literally the definition of AI. <laughs> so it was designed that way because we prioritized profit and scale and markets over humanity. That's, and that's why they're in the position that they're in. The writer's room, the writers, the directors, the actors, they're shook because they're in a system that was designed to pump out a product, not make art. It was designed to pump out a product. So of course, as soon as there's an automated solution that's going to come along, it's going to threaten the humans that are there in that place that was designed to literally be automated. So. We're now dealing with the restructuring of our very values, which is why I say to the writers and the directors and the actors trying to make the, think that the system is going to treat them right, come back to the table and negotiate, to negotiate for a way of producing that was not really, was just designed for automation. So maybe we should think about something else now. We have the tools to do it. Man, if you put this out, I might fucking regret it. I don't know if I'm going to click on it. I might not spread <laughs> But that's been, but that's been in my, and pardon my French. I'm sorry for my language. You're but fine. You're fine. That's been in my head and on my heart for some weeks now. And my wife works in Hollywood. My wife works in the Hollywood system. And I talk with her about it all the time. And she's with me. And there's other friends I have who, are, who work in the studio systems as well. And they have similar feelings. So I know, I'm not, I know I'm not alone in this, but that thinking hasn't really been it's not out there. It's not mainstream like that yet. Here's something that's very interesting. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a little bit of a devil's advocate here with what you said. Norbert said we went to a creativity conference, but a lot of writers, a lot of small publishers. And the problem, what was go what's going on with AI right now, these publishing houses have to close half a year. 
because they can't be open anymore is the full year because they take so many submissions. You'll have so many people to read for them. They can mm. only take so many submissions a year. Mm. They're mm. being flooded by AI stuff. Mm. So they've shut down for the year. So they've got all the books that they can read. And it's really taxing on them. Now, I think Amazon did something about not accepting AI books or something like that. You can tell I'm really learned about this because I can't remember where I heard it, but I did hear it. So the thing is that it's affecting people differently. To, and you, like you said earlier, it's a very complicated issue. Yeah. Very. And I agree 100% with that. Yes, yes. Well, first of all, the, that publisher, there's an AI out there that could probably read all those submissions for them and cut through that work. I'm serious. <laughs> why not? Or invest in, little, why not build, invest in building that AI so that you can comb through all those submissions and not have to shut down for half the year. You can build that machine probably for a fraction of the, the cost that you will spend paying people to read all that stuff. You might as well just build a machine and can read all the submissions. And that's who's going to make the money. They make the ones that make that machine. But yeah, they, there's definitely like a lot of different ways to look at it. But ultimately, it, back to our first point, for this to net out, net good, as many people as possible need access to it. Because that's where the that's where the ideas and that's where the solutions are going to come from about how to best move forward in a way that's not going to hurt us because people are going to develop the solutions that protect themselves. That that said, kind of back to like the agency work, as we were kind of trying to develop a at the top of the year, it was like, okay, everybody's buzzing about AI. What are we going to do with AI? And my my take on it was like Let's not lead with AI. Let's lead with what problems do we want to solve? What's out there that we can do for the world or what novel thing do we want to do? And then we see how AI can help us do that. There's been a lot of, what can we do with AI for this year in particular? AI is a big thing. What can we do with it? Let's do something with it. And that's, that puts us in a little bit of a dangerous spot because then we just start using tech without really knowing how it works because we want to, I don't know what it is. We want to compete and we want to be first and we want to make the most money with it and all of that. But what problem can we solve? So with the publisher house, like, oh, you're getting AI has created a new problem. Now we use AI to solve that problem. Now we have a reason to use it. Let's make a machine that can read book submissions and sort them for us based on our personal values. That's awesome. Yeah. I've got a personal question about you personally. As a successful creative, one of the things I think about AI is a tool. And I was thinking about like a couple different aspects, if you can talk about this. It's like, one is on your successful creative projects that you, in your mind, feel creative. Do you feel like you're filtering through ideas and you understand which idea to select or is it something that you come up with and it's a flash of insight in the human condition that makes that creative idea pop and the final aspect of it do you find that creative work is better when you're working with people and they're helping shape how the where the solution's going or do you find working by yourself and coming up with that solution is the most satisfying for you, if not the best. That's a big question it's, there, but yes. <laughs> all right. All right. 
Okay, that's all the time we have tonight now. <laughs> <laughs> nah, but for real, man, it really, jokes aside, yes, to all of it. There's sometimes when there's a mode of sifting through ideas that all landed at once and figuring out what is the best one. There are modes where sometimes you have a light bulb moment and that's the one. And it's, that's pure inspiration. That's the dragon that every artist is chasing, like that moment. Uh, <laughs> there it is, you know? But when it comes in that's Atlanta, the drug you want again that's the drug you want again once once it gets in and all i think all people have a version of that that thing that that makes them feel like no other thing does and when we lose that's when we're sad when we're empty or we start dealing with other emotional modes but yeah then there's the mode of collaboration which is oh we're all bouncing off of each other and oh yeah and this thing is coming together oh it feels that's a vibe and then there's the vibe of solitude which is really my favorite that's my preferred mode solitude and waiting for the light bulb i love those two modes that's kind of like the ideal situation for me is to be in solitude and and for the idea to hit and be able to like kind of hear myself think and then the thing comes together but the gift of being a senior artist is kind of like knowing your process and how it works and knowing when it's time to like fall back or it's time to push for a mode, I could push for a mode to happen or kind of what's the word I'm looking for, induce a mode and knowing kind of there's a formula to maybe make a mode happen or being able to cross those different modes at different times and different scenarios with different people, depending on the project and, and how much of my heart is in it personally, or if it's just like purely a work for hire, it all depends. So yes, to all of it, and all of that works. What I've read about Glow is that it's a you guys do some really cool work. You work with some fantastic companies and groups. Yes. But I wanted to ask you about the Kismet Experience sure. Studio. So you're the founding principal and creative director. It's the interdisciplinary practice for creative direction. What's that all about? <laughs> I've spent like three years trying to figure that out. But I tell you what, though, and this is actually a testament to GLOW. Four years ago, I decided I was done with marketing. At this point, I was pretty much kind of like an ACD copywriter, junior creative director at this point. And I was done with it. I had already kind of been over it for a while, but I was like, I see it out and I'm looking my mind and my heart are in other places. And I want to get into like experience. I feel like the future is going to be off screens. And so where do I fit in that world? I want to make experiences that people can go to and visit and heal themselves. And so how do I begin to like become like an experiential designers of sorts? And so I started learning things like interior design and gardening and agricultural concepts and basic architectural concepts. And then I, the next phase of that was, okay, now I think I want to really start telling stories for screen. My, my wife always told me she thought I would be a screenwriter one day and I'd avoid it, avoid it. And then the time came when I was like, okay, I think I can explore that medium now. So then I started writing scripts for stories that had been kind of knocking around in my head forever. And then I just, I don't know, it, all the things that I'm interested in kind of came together under this umbrella of experience and liberating the human experience from screens. Now, I know I just mentioned storytelling and TV and stuff like that, but, and that's on a screen, but what the kids made experience about is Okay, if I tell a story on screen, what's going to be the offline component of it? What's going to be the in real life component of it where you can go 
it's not just going to be a movie or a television series that you watch. Like there should be an installation or there should be a place where you can go and sit and meditate. There should be a thing where you can go and experience this world yourself because I'm trying to pull people off of the screen. So that's what that, that practice is about. And then when the AI thing came around and started bubbling, then it was like, oh, I can actually, there's a tool developing now where I can actually start to develop these ideas. And so AI is starting to become a really big part of the Kismet experience. I'm not sure, but once I started messing around with generative AI and then started understanding that there's an ethical way to use it, then I was like, uh-oh, oh, it's all, oh, it's a wrap now. Y'all done gave me generative AI? Oh, now. <laughs> so I'm not sure how it's all going to come together under Kismet. We're just kind of like experimenting right now and filling it out and seeing where things are going to land, but... That's my experimentation house that I hope will one day end up in something that's on the screen that then one day you can go offline experience too. I love that. We had talked to another creative director that had his own kind of lab that they worked on just yeah. ideas. And that is, that's awesome. And yes, and I'm looking forward. I feel like this year it's going to become clear to me how it all connects. Um, so I'm looking forward to that moment. But in the meantime, like after I had sworn off like a career in marketing, a few years later, then I met the Glow team. And it's, that's why I say it's a testament to them because I was like, if I go work for an agency, I have to work with folks who understand my value and understand the value of my time and also lead and work with empathy. And that's what Glow is all about for me. Like they work with their heart and they came to me and they saw me and they said, we see you. So how can we align? Not like, how can we hire you? It was like, how can we align? Let's be allies. That's what our relationship is. And so I don't have a problem working for and within an agency that moves in that way. That's what makes Glow great. So while I figure out what the Kismet experience is, Glow is a great home to work and play on and sharpen my tools as a creative director. They're the cauldron in which I'm really sharpening myself as a CD. And so I'll be forever indebted to them for that. And so shout out to the leadership there, Ellie and Ted and Peter and Howie all those guys. That's fantastic. One last question for you. And that is, this is something that I think every problem solver or creative person of any sort has dealt with. What do you personally do or advocate for your team to do when the solution is not satisfying? Yeah. What is it pulling back? Is it full steam ahead and generating ideas? What's your general kind of mode of when the solution is not what you're happy with. Let's get out of our heads. Usually when we're not hitting a solution, it means we're too in the weeds to see what the problem is, to see how to solve the solution. So let's step away from it for a second. Let's go joke about some, I'm going to share some memes. We're going to talk about something else. We're going to get off of this. We're going to take some of the pressure off of it so that we can come back to it with a fresh mind and fresh eyes and fresh ears. Um, that are, that have been jolted out of this thinking. Cause you can grind an ax, which is cool. I love grinding axes. Like I got a closet full of just ground ax handles. This is like my favorite thing to do is grind axe. My wife is like, what the fuck are all these axes, man? What do you do? This <laughs> I do rock grind. You married me. But in, in terms of teamwork, I know that not everybody's cut out for that. And when I start to feel like the ax is grinding to, and it's getting non-productive, then, hey, let's, we'll come back to this. We got other things to worry about. Don't worry about it. I'm, I'll manage the time so that we have time enough to get back into the mode and solve the problem. But typically that's my first response. And then maybe another response is 
looking for inspiration that speaks to the problem solving. So looking for outside inspiration, seeing how other folks have solved similar problems, looking to the masters, quote unquote, to see what they've done. And so I find that looking for inspiration a lot of times and getting outside, really, I guess both of those are different versions of just getting outside and getting away from it and taking your hands off for a second and coming back to it with new energy. I find that works better for a team. Oh, very good. In terms of my leadership style, anyway, that seems to be what works best. So we, there's an old saying where art is never finished. It's just abandoned. <laughs> have you ever come in under the deadline? Wait, what do you mean by under the deadline? You have a deadline. You're supposed to have this done by this time, but you have it done two days before. Yeah, yeah. I love to come in way under deadline, especially if it's just me solo. Because of the nature, as you saw my bio, like <clears throat> I have so much going on and that's just yeah. the way I do my life to try to maximize my potential for better, for worse. So I don't, wherever I can save time, I try to. And so if I can get in under a, th- a deadline, then I will. Or sometimes I'll finish a thing. Don't tell anybody. Sometimes I'll finish a thing and won't tell anybody what's done until the deadline time. You know what I mean? <laughs> but that's not typical. But uh, yeah, man, I love, I don't. I love deadlines and like schedules and calendars and time management. I don't know when that happens because I wasn't always this way, but I love this era of my life of being about time. It's about time. One last question I've got. Like you said, you're really busy. I see all the stuff you do, but you're a musician as well. When do you find time to practice your musicianship? And also, what does it do for you? Does it... Is it just another, was it something to keep you busy or is, is there oh. a more of a something else about it? Oh man. Um, when do I find time? I, I structured my life around music and being a songwriter. So I have very sacred spaces in my schedule that are there just to play with music and just to write. And I keep those spaces. Even when maybe music isn't the priority per se, but it's always the priority. I'll get to that in a second. But when it's not the like public facing priority, I keep that space because that's where I hone my discipline as a writer. That's where I hone my discipline as a creative. And that's also where I do a lot of my just internal, it's my therapy. It, that's where I do a lot of my internal work. I unpack things. I talk to myself, I do my spiritual work, I work through old childhood trauma stuff, I look ahead, I do my forecasting, I get my ego out, especially since I work in hip-hop, like it's really important, it's a really important outlet for the ego, so I can dump my ego into my music, and then I can walk the world a little bit more humble, so all my like grandiose is about who I am and what I should be and how great I am <laughs> or also the darker parts, like the parts of myself that I'm more ashamed about and that I am not confident in walking through the world with, but I'm confident in speaking about in music. So it gives me a place to work. It's my workshop. It's my church. It's my workshop in my church. So that's how it's a necessity. It's a necessity for me to have it. So I, I it's, I, I can't imagine doing anything else that I do in life without having that space for my music. That's how important it is. There was, there was a second part to that question, right? I think you answered that. I was asking you basically how important is it to you? Yeah, it's everything. 
It's everything. But the way that I, what makes me particularly distinct and unique as a creative and as a writer is the way that I connect dots. And the way that I connect dots is a very trained process that starts in my music practice. And so all the value that I bring to the world and the community and my, my colleagues and my family, a lot of the value anyway comes from the work that I do in that workshop. That's where I, that's where I sharpen my blades and hone my, and refine myself. That's the cauldron where I refine myself to the best, to the best of our ability. So that's awesome that you have that. I'm doing it. I'm doing creative, it. Creative director at Glow. You're not doing too bad. I'll, I'm going to say that right now. Hey, salute. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Super talented dude, man. I'm so glad that you sat down with us tonight and talked. I don't care how tired you were. This was awesome. So <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all so much for having me, man. I, and great conversation. Great conversationalist. I really enjoyed. I've done been around a block a little bit. I cool. really enjoyed this conversation like for real you guys ask great questions great conversation and i love the energy and, and what y'all are doing and i wish you all the best moving forward with uh, podcasts and all the rest of your endeavors thanks that really means a lot i really appreciate yeah. it yeah us us oldsters talking about ai is and <laughs> we didn't want to come across as dumb bat was like read this article man we don't want you to come off and do your larry king thing Hey, you know what? I know there was a couple of moments in there where you guys checked yourselves like, oh, old guys with AI and I'm not that learned. Yo, nobody knows anything about anything, right? <laughs> Trust, you can hop on YouTube right now and go find you a Google exec who is literally de developed the world's most powerful AI and they don't even know what the hell is. They don't know what's happening. Nobody knows what's happening. It's cool, man. Like now's the time to talk about it. This is the yeah. time. This is the time where we can talk about it because we're laying the groundwork for what the next generation is going to have to deal with so we can set those we can set the vibe and the tone now so let's just go ahead and get it all out there's no ego here like we're trying to figure out and it's going to be weird because we're going to have these weird conversations about what things mean what is creativity what is ownership what is the human spirit and soul and creativity what is it? we're going to have to get down to the nitty-gritty of it in a second and so it's kind of cool that we're alive now to see this happen because this is a, this is an important juncture i think oh, i agree 100 absolutely yeah. yo thank y'all so much for having me i gotta go get these girls from school all right some <laughs> thanks so much you have a good oh, one. thank you so much all right stay in touch absolutely later. Right. Peace. later thanks for hanging out with us on the true fiction podcast if you like what you've heard please visit us at facebook you can also leave us a review on itunes or through your favorite podcast app until next time, stay true and stay creative. Hey, hey. You're too late.